Question 89, Part 2 of Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde. Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues. The Virtue of Justice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Secunda Secunde. Treatise on the Cardinal Virtues. The Virtue of Justice, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 89 of Oaths in Ten Articles, Part 2, Article 6 through 10. Sixth Article, Whether it is lawful to swear by creatures. Objection 1 it would seem that it is not lawful to swear by creatures. It is written in Matthew 5, verses 34 and 36, I say to you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, nor by earth, nor by Jerusalem, nor by thy head. And Jerome, expounding these words, says, Observe that the Savior does not forbid swearing by God, but by heaven and earth etc. Objection to further. Punishment is not due save for a fault. Now a punishment is appointed for one who swears by creatures, for it is written in the canon clericum. If a cleric swears by creatures, he must be very severely rebuked, and if he shall persist in this vicious habit, we wish that he be excommunicated. Therefore, it is unlawful to swear by creatures. Objection 3 further. An oath is an act of religion, as stated above in Article 4. But religious worship is not due to any creature, according to Romans 1, verses 23 and 25. Therefore, it is not lawful to swear by a creature. On the contrary, Joseph swore by the health of Pharaoh, confer Genesis 42.16. Moreover, it is customary to swear by the gospel, by relics, and by the saints. I answer that, as stated above in Article 1, Third Reply, there are two kinds of oath. One is uttered as a simple contestation, or calling God as witness. And this kind of oath, like faith, is based on God's truth. Now faith is essentially and chiefly about God, who is the very truth, and secondarily about creatures in which God's truth is reflected, as stated above in Question 1, Article 1. In like manner, an oath is chiefly referred to God whose testimony is invoked, and secondarily an appeal by oath is made to certain creatures considered not in themselves, but as reflecting the divine truth. Thus we swear by the gospel, that is, by God whose truth is made known in the gospel, and by the saints who believed this truth and kept it. The other way of swearing is by cursing, and in this kind of oath a creature is adduced that the judgment of God may be wrought therein. Thus a man is wont to swear by his head, or by his son, or by some other thing that he loves, even as the apostle swore, 
in Second Corinthians one twenty three, saying, I call God to witness upon my soul. As to Joseph's oath by the health of Pharaoh, this may be understood in both ways, either by way of a curse, as though he pledged Pharaoh's health to God, or by way of contestation, as though he appealed to the truth of God's justice, which the princes of the earth are appointed to execute. Reply to Objection 1. Our Lord forbade us to swear by creatures so as to give them the reverence due to God. Hence Jerome adds that the Jews, through swearing by the angels and the like, worshipped creatures with a divine honor. In the same sense, a cleric is punished, according to the canons, for swearing by a creature, for this savors of the blasphemy of unbelief. Hence, in the next chapter, it is said, If anyone swears by God's hair or head, or otherwise utter blasphemy against God, and he be in ecclesiastical orders, let him be degraded. This suffices for the reply to the second objection. Reply to Objection 3. Religious worship is shown to one whose testimony is invoked by oath. Hence the prohibition, in Exodus 23, verse 13, By the name of strange gods you shall not swear. But religious worship is not given to creatures employed in an oath in the ways mentioned above. Seventh Article whether an oath has a binding force. Objection 1. It would seem that an oath has no binding force. An oath is employed in order to confirm the truth of an assertion. But when a person makes an assertion about the future, his assertion is true, though it may not be verified. Thus Paul lied not in Second Corinthians one fifteen and following, though he went not to Corinth, as he had said he would in 1 Corinthians 16.5. Therefore, it seems that an oath is not binding. Objection to further. Virtue is not contrary to virtue, according to Categories 8.22. Now an oath is an act of virtue, as stated above in Article 4. But it would sometimes be contrary to virtue, or an obstacle thereto, if one were to fulfill what one has sworn to do, for instance, if one were to swear to commit a sin, or to desist from some virtuous action. Therefore, an oath is not always binding. Objection 3 further. Sometimes a man is compelled against his will to promise something under oath. Now, such a person is loosed by the Roman pontiffs from the bond of his oath. Therefore, an oath is not always binding. Objection for further. No person can be under two opposite obligations. Yet sometimes the person who swears and the person to whom he swears have opposite intentions. Therefore, an oath cannot always be binding. On the contrary, it is written in Matthew 5 verse 33. Thou shalt perform thy oaths to the Lord. I answer that. An obligation implies something to be done or omitted, so that apparently it regards neither the declaratory oath, 
which is about something present or past, nor such oaths as are about something to be affected by some other cause, as, for example, if one were to swear that it would rain tomorrow, but only such as are about things to be done by the person who swears. Now just as a declaratory oath, which is about the future or the present, should contain the truth, so too ought the oath which is about something to be done by us in the future. Yet there is a difference, since in the oath that is about the past or present, this obligation affects not the thing that already has been or is, but the action of the swearer, in the point of his swearing, to what is or was already true. Whereas, on the contrary, in the oath that is made about something to be done by us, the obligation falls on the thing guaranteed by oath. For a man is bound to make true what he has sworn, else his oath lacks truth. Now if this thing be such as not to be in his power, his oath is lacking in judgment of discretion, unless perchance what was possible when he swore become impossible to him through some mishap, as when a man swore to pay a sum of money which is subsequently taken from him by force or theft. For then he would seem to be excused from fulfilling his oath, although he is bound to do what he can, as in fact we have already stated with regard to the obligation of a vow. Confer question 88, article 3, second reply. If, on the other hand, it be something that he can do, but ought not to, either because it is essentially evil, or because it is an hindrance to a good, then his oath is lacking in justice. Wherefore an oath must not be kept when it involves a sin or a hindrance to good. For in either case, its result is evil. Accordingly, we must conclude that whoever swears to do something is bound to do what he can for the fulfillment of truth, provided always that the other two accompanying conditions be present, namely, judgment and justice. Reply to Objection 1. It is not the same with a simple assertion and with an oath wherein God is called to witness because it suffices for the truth of an assertion that a person say what he proposes to do, since it is already true in its cause, namely, the purpose of the doer. But an oath should not be employed save in a matter about which one is firmly certain, and consequently, if a man employ an oath, he is bound, as far as he can, to make true what he has sworn, through reverence of the divine witness invoked, unless it leads to an evil result, as stated. Reply to Objection 2. An oath may lead to an evil result in two ways. First, because from the very outset it has an evil result, either through being evil of its very nature, as if a man were to swear to commit adultery, or through being a hindrance to a greater good, as if a man were to swear not to enter religion, or not to become a cleric, or that he would not accept a prelacy, supposing it would be expedient for him to accept, or in similar cases. For oaths of this kind are unlawful from the outset, yet with a difference, because if a man were to swear to commit a sin, he sinned in swearing, and sins in keeping his oath. 
whereas if a man swear not to perform a greater good, which he is not bound to do withal, he sins indeed in swearing, through placing an obstacle to the Holy Ghost, who is the inspirer of good purposes. Yet he does not sin in keeping his oath, though he does much better if he does not keep it. Secondly, an oath leads to an evil result through some new and unforeseen emergency. An instance is the oath of Herod, who swore to the damsel who danced before him that he would give her what she would ask of him. For this oath could be lawful from the outset, supposing it to have the requisite conditions, namely, that the damsel asked what it was right to grant. But the fulfillment of the oath was unlawful. Hence Ambrose says in On the Duties of the Clergy 150, Sometimes it is wrong to fulfill a promise and to keep an oath, as Herod, who granted the slaying of John rather than refuse what he had promised. Reply to Objection 3. There is a twofold obligation in the oath which a man takes under compulsion. One, whereby he is beholden to the person to whom he promises something, and this obligation is cancelled by the compulsion because he that used force deserves that the promise made to him should not be kept. The other is an obligation whereby a man is beholden to God, in virtue of which he is bound to fulfill what he has promised in his name. This obligation is not removed in the tribunal of conscience, because that man ought rather to suffer temporal loss than violate his oath. He can, however, seek in a court of justice to recover what he has paid, or denounce the matter to his superior, even if he has swore to the contrary, because such an oath would lead to evil results, since it would be contrary to public justice. The Roman pontiffs, in absolving men from oaths of this kind, did not pronounce such oaths to be unbinding, but relaxed the obligation for some just cause. Reply to Objection 4. When the intention of the swearer is not the same as the intention of the person to whom he swears, if this be due to the swearer's guile, he must keep his oath in accordance with the sound understanding of the person to whom the oath is made. Hence Isidore says in On the Supreme Good 2.31, However artful a man may be in wording his oath, God who witnesses his conscience accepts his oath as understood by the person to whom it is made. And that this refers to the deceitful oath is clear from what follows. He is doubly guilty who both takes God's name in vain and tricks his neighbor by guile. If, however, the swearer uses no guile, he is bound in accordance with his own intention. Wherefore Gregory says in his commentary on Job, 26.7. The human ear takes such like words in their natural outward sense, but the divine judgment interprets them according to our inward intention. Eighth article. Whether an oath is more binding than a vow. Objection 1. It would seem that an oath is more binding than a vow. A vow is a simple promise, whereas an oath includes, besides a promise, an appeal to God as witness. Therefore, an oath is more binding than a vow. Objection to further. 
the weaker is wont to be confirmed by the stronger. Now a vow is sometimes confirmed by an oath. Therefore, an oath is stronger than a vow. Objection 3. Further, the obligation of a vow arises from the deliberation of the mind, as stated above in question 88, article 1, while the obligation of an oath results from the truth of God, whose testimony is invoked. Since, therefore, God's truth is something greater than human deliberation, it seems that the obligation of an oath is greater than that of a vow. On the contrary, a vow binds one to God, while an oath sometimes binds one to man. Now one is more bound to God than to man. Therefore, a vow is more binding than an oath. I answer that. The obligation, both of vow and of an oath, arises from something divine, but in different ways. For the obligation of a vow arises from the fidelity we owe God, which binds us to fulfill our promises to Him. On the other hand, the obligation of an oath arises from the reverence we owe Him, which binds us to make true what we promise in His name. Now every act of infidelity includes an irreverence, but not conversely, because the infidelity of a subject to his lord would seem to be the greatest irreverence. Hence a vow by its very nature is more binding than an oath. Reply to Objection 1. A vow is not any kind of promise, but a promise made to God, and to be unfaithful to God is most grievous. Reply to Objection 2. An oath is added to a vow not because it is more stable, but because greater stability results from two immutable things. Confer Hebrews 6.18. Reply to Objection 3. Deliberation of the mind gives a vow its stability on the part of the person who takes the vow, but it has a greater cause of stability on the part of God to whom the vow is offered. Ninth article. Whether anyone can dispense from an oath. Objection one. It would seem that no one can dispense from an oath. Just as truth is required for a declaratory oath, which is about the past or the present, so too is it required for a promissory oath, which is about the future. Now no one can dispense a man from swearing to the truth about present or past things. Therefore, neither can anyone dispense a man from making truth that which he promised by oath to do in the future. Objection to further. A promissory oath is used for the benefit of the person to whom the promise is made. But apparently, he cannot release the other from his oath, since it would be contrary to the reverence of God. Much less, therefore, can a dispensation from this oath be granted by anyone. Objection 3 further. Any bishop can grant a dispensation from a vow, except certain vows reserved to the Pope alone, as stated above in question 88, article 12, third reply. 
Therefore, in like manner, if an oath admits of dispensation, any bishop can dispense from an oath. And yet seemingly this is to be against the law. Therefore, it would seem that an oath does not admit of dispensation. On the contrary, a vow is more binding than an oath, as stated above in Article 8. But a vow admits of dispensation, and therefore an oath does also. I answer that, as stated above in Question 88, Article 10, the necessity of a dispensation both from the law and from a vow, arises from the fact that something which is useful and morally good in itself and considered in general may be morally evil and hurtful in respect of some particular emergency, and such a case comes under neither law nor vow. Now anything morally evil or hurtful is incompatible with the matter of an oath. For if it be morally evil, it is opposed to justice, and if it be hurtful, it is contrary to judgment. Therefore, an oath likewise admits of dispensation. Reply to Objection 1. A dispensation from an oath does not imply a permission to do anything against the oath, for this is impossible, since the keeping of an oath comes under a divine precept which does not admit of dispensation but it implies that what hitherto came under an oath no longer comes under it, as not being due matter for an oath, just as we have said with regard to vows, in question 88, article 10, second reply. Now the matter of a declaratory oath, which is about something past or present, has already acquired a certain necessity, and has become unchangeable. Wherefore, the dispensation will regard not the matter, but the act itself of the oath. So that such a dispensation would be directly contrary to the divine precept. On the other hand, the matter of a promissory oath is something future, which admits of change, so that, to wit, in certain emergencies, it may be unlawful or hurtful, and consequently undue matter for an oath. Therefore, a promissory oath admits of dispensation, since such a dispensation regards the matter of an oath and is not contrary to the divine precept about keeping of oaths. Reply to Objection 2. One man may promise something under an oath to another in two ways. First, when he promises something for his benefit, for instance, if he promised to serve him or to give him money, and from such a promise he can be released by the person to whom he made it. For he is understood to have already kept his promise to him when he acts toward him according to his will. Secondly, one man promises another something pertaining to God's honor or to the benefit of others. For instance, if a man promise another under oath that he will enter religion or perform some act of kindness, in this case, the person to whom the promise is made cannot release him that made the promise, because it was made principally not to him but to God, unless perchance it included some condition, for instance, provided he give his consent, or some such like condition. Reply to Objection 3. 
sometimes that which is made the matter of a promissory oath is manifestly opposed to justice, either because it is a sin, as when a man swears to commit a murder, or because it is an obstacle to a greater good, as when a man swears not to enter religion, and such an oath requires no dispensation. But in the former case, a man is bound not to keep such an oath, while in the latter it is unlawful for him to keep or not to keep an oath, as stated above in Article 7, Second Reply. Sometimes what is promised an oath is doubtfully right or wrong, useful or harmful, either in itself or under the circumstance. In this case, any bishop can dispense. Sometimes, however, that which is promised under oath is manifestly lawful and beneficial. An oath of this kind seemingly admits not of dispensation, but of commutation, when there occurs something better to be done for the common good, in which case the matter would seem to belong chiefly to the power of the Pope, who has charge over the whole Church, and even of absolute relaxation, for this too belongs in general to the Pope in all matters regarding the administration of things ecclesiastical. Thus, it is competent to any man to cancel an oath made by one of his subjects in matters that come under his authority. For instance, a father may annul his daughter's oath and a husband his wife's, confer Numbers, verse 30 and following, as stated above with regard to vows, in question 88, articles 8 and 9. 10th article whether an oath is voided by a condition of person or time. Objection 1. It would seem that an oath is not voided by a condition of person or time. An oath, according to the Apostle in Hebrews 6.16, is employed for the purpose of confirmation. Now it is competent to anyone to confirm his assertion and at any time. Therefore, it would seem that an oath is not voided by a condition of person or time. Objection to further. To swear by God is more than to swear by the Gospels. Wherefore Chrysostom says, If there is a reason for swearing, it seems a small thing to swear by God, but a great thing to swear by the Gospels. To those who think thus, it must be said, Nonsense! The Scriptures were made for God's sake, not God for the sake of the Scriptures. Now men, of all conditions, and at all times, are wont to swear by God. Much more, therefore, is it lawful to swear by the Gospels. Objection 3 further. The same effect does not proceed from contrary causes, since contrary causes produce contrary effects. Now some are debarred from swearing on account of some personal defect. Children, for instance, before the age of fourteen, and persons who have already committed perjury. Therefore, it would seem that a person ought not to be debarred from swearing either on account of his dignity as clerics, or on account of the solemnity of the time. Objection 4. Further, in this world, no living man is equal in dignity to an angel, for it is written in Matthew 11.11 11, that he that is lesser in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, namely, than John the Baptist, while yet living. 
Now an angel is competent to swear, for it is written in Apocalypse 10.16 that the angel swore by him that liveth for ever and ever. Therefore, no man ought to be excused from swearing on account of his dignity. On the contrary, it is stated in the canon Sequis Presbyter, Let a priest be examined by his sacred consecration, instead of being put on his oath. And again, in the canon Nullus, let no one in ecclesiastical orders dare to swear on the Holy Gospels to a layman. I answer that two things are to be considered in an oath. One is on the part of God, whose testimony is invoked, and in this respect we should hold an oath in its greatest reverence. For this reason, children before the age of puberty are debarred from taking oaths, and are not called upon to swear because they have not yet attained the perfect use of reason, so as to be able to take an oath with due reverence. Perjurers are also debarred from taking an oath, because it is presumed from their antecedents that they will not treat an oath with the reverence due to it. For this reason, in order that oaths might be treated with due reverence, the law says, in the canon Onestum, it is becoming that he who ventures to swear on holy things should do so fasting with all propriety and fear of God. The other thing to be considered is on the part of the man, whose assertion is confirmed by oath. For a man's assertion needs no confirmation save because there is a doubt about it. Now it derogates from a person's dignity that one should doubt about the truth of what he says, wherefore, it becomes not persons of great dignity to swear. For this reason the law says in canon Sequis Presbyter that priests should not swear for trifling reasons. Nevertheless, it is lawful for them to swear if there be need for it, or if great good may result therefrom. Especially is this the case in spiritual affairs when, moreover, it is becoming that they should take an oath on days of solemnity, since they ought then to devote themselves to spiritual matters. Nor should they on such occasions take oaths for temporal matters, except, perhaps, in cases of grave necessity. Reply to Objection 1. Some are unable to confirm their own assertions on account of their own defect, and some there are whose words should be so certain that they need no confirmation. Reply to Objection 2. The greater the thing sworn by, the holier and the more binding is the oath considered in itself, as Augustine states. And accordingly, it is a graver matter to swear by God than by the Gospels. Yet the contrary may be the case on account of the manner of swearing, for instance, an oath by the Gospels might be taken with deliberation and solemnity, and an oath by God frivolously and without deliberation. Reply to Objection 3. Nothing prevents the same thing from arising out of contrary causes by way of superabundance and defect. It is in this way that some are debarred from swearing through being of so great authority that it is unbecoming for them to swear, 
while others are of such little authority that their oaths have no standing. Reply to Objection 4. The angel's oath is adduced not on account of any defect in the angel, as though one ought not to credit his mere word, but in order to show that the statement made issues from God's infallible disposition. Thus too God is sometimes spoken of by Scripture as swearing, in order to express the immutability of his word, as the Apostle declares in Hebrews 6.17. End of question 89. Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.